Hello and welcome to Connected by Life. I'm your host, Sean Paul Harrison. Connected by Life was created to have engaging conversations about important topics that impact physicians and our clinical stakeholders in regards to organ and tissue donation. Today we're going to be discussing the technical aspects of tissue donation. My guest is Joel Scott. He has a career in the medical field spanning over 15 years, ranging from a paramedic to Lopus Tissue Recovery Manager. He will also be talking about his unique experience as the son of a tissue donor. Well, hey, Joel, welcome to the studio, man. Um, I'm really excited about having you on the podcast today. One of the things that we've talked about is that this is a platform for us to talk about a lot of different topics that impact, you know, obviously our donor families and recipients, but also physicians and healthcare workers. So, you know, this is one of the first times we've ever had this topic on our podcast. So thank you for being here. Stoked. It's pretty exciting to talk about. Yeah. So one of the things, you know, you and I've discussed this even before is that, you know, sometimes it can seem as though tissue donation is overshadowed by organ donation. And one of the things I'd like to do today is just delve into the significance of tissue donation, you know, for families that have lost a loved one and how it impacts the medical community as well. So I think maybe the way that we could start off is just, can you talk a little bit, you know, I know that there's so many things that we can get into, but, you know, who has the opportunity to be a tissue donor? It's a little stricter than the organ side, which always kind of makes people mind boggled a little bit that the tissue side has kind of stricter regimented criteria on what we can take and who we can't. Um, Everything that we can recover is derivative off of what a processor will accept. So they give us their guidelines. So at this point, there is no weight restriction on a minimum. So any pediatric can can, um, donate heart for valve. That goes until the age of 12. 12 till 80 is MS, which is the musculoskeletal tissues. Um, and then just depending on processors, we also have heart for valve for adults. There are saphenous veins for up until 60, depending on processors. They, they get questioned. They don't get questioned. They, um, they change their criteria on the fly. So if they're seeing that they don't have enough of that certain graft that is produced, they will change their criteria to give us to give the recovery partners a bigger yeah, because that was one of net. the things that I wanted to ask you was like how often and why does the criteria change? Yeah, so it basically is kind of it's a supply and demand kind of atmosphere with a processor. If they have an abundance of veins, they could come down on their criteria to, to make it more selective of we want this age to this age, or if they are nationally getting short they can kind of up the criteria. So let's just back up just a second. So we went into, you know, basically some of the criteria, whatnot, yeah. but where does the process even start? Process starts with, so it can come from a coroner's office and then come from the hospital. Uh, we would love to have every death reported to LOPA to know someone has passed away. They come to us as a referral. We look at basically the demographic information of the person that has passed away. So when we look at it, if they are inside the criteria ranges for one of our processors, we can deem them suitable to approach. We can try to contact the family and figure out 
who is this person? Are they how? What is their health? All those things that we have to go through to figure out the criteria for the person. So when that phone call is made, let's we'll use the hospital as yeah. the example for right now. But so whenever that referral is made, that phone call is made, then that screening time is there an average time that that takes? Um, it all is dependent on when it's called and how it's called. But we always we live under very tight time constraints, so everybody. It's either a 15-hour mark or a 24-hour mark after time of death. That tissue has to be recovered. Like what's, it's a, and what's the importance of those two time frames? So 15 hours is if someone never went into cooling post-mortem. So if they just they passed away, they could have been at home. Um, if they never went into cooling, it can affect the, the tissue quality. So that 15-hour mark is kind of the mark for if no one's been into cooling. If someone goes into cooling before the 12 hour mark, we can go up to 24 hours to give ourselves more time to make recoveries happen and the tissues will be viable longer um, than the 15 hour. Like that, the 15 hour piece does push, push recoveries a lot faster and a lot harder. So what is some of the variables of, of why, you know, we've taken that long in between the referral, the screening, and then you know, what the decision is with the family. Yeah, so a lot of these people are contacted uh, by our call center. So in that moment, <laughs> no one's really gonna be answering the phone from a random number this day and age. So it does play into how many times do we have to call um, before we can get someone on the phone to give this, and it's always very, it's a sensitive moment. Someone just passed away, so we have to get into immediately end of life decisions when it comes to tissue. Mm -hmm. So it does kind of force our hand to be, we have to be fast to the jump of contacting families. Which is much different because in some of our previous episodes, when the family advocate, when we're approaching for a donation or when you all are approaching for donation, typically it's a family advocate Right. That's with that person. Yeah, face to face yeah. and they can see all the things. So I can't imagine, you know, how difficult that may be. Yeah, that's always my, you know, a, Big, big highlight on our call center because they are, these referrals come in, they're doing a very quick overview of the chart and everything else to see suitability. And then they are literally calling the family and saying, hi, I am who I am. I'm representing Lopa. I want to talk to you about end of life decisions with tissue donation, tissue recovery, all those things. And you have to be good in the phone and like letting someone understand and no one where we are as a society with the phone, it does, it takes a lot. It's a, you know, hearing these conversations, it's a lot to unpack and they do a wonderful job at explaining what the process is, what the timing is and all that part. So obviously they have a tremendous amount of training. Yeah. A lot of training goes in, in there's an, every call is looked over. We're always looking to process and prove as far as what kind of type of conversations work what doesn't, when do we approach like hours of the day? Like if um, your family member passed away and then we call you at two in the morning because if we still have like the 24 hour countdown is still there. But if we know we can call you in the morning and it's not gonna impact this time, this timer that's constantly counting down, we're gonna try to make that happen. That way we're not bothering you in the middle of the night trying to ask you these extremely difficult questions of, Hey, do you want your family member to be a donor? Like so obviously communication is a huge factor in this because y'all are having to make sure that you're talking with the hospital 
depending on what the yep. family's decision has been. Yeah, so you talk to the hospital first to kind of get a insight on how how is the family dynamic, who was there for the for the decedent, and then it goes from there of like next of kin, like who is that? And there are we're all you know have different walks of life, so next of kin could be the normal traditional hey, it's my wife, or it could be some people are estranged from their family, so it becomes a who do we contact? And this is the part where there are multiple levels of decision-making and who is the appropriate authorizing party and all that. So there's a lot of balls to juggle in a very tight window of time because that 24-hour mark really is, at the end of the day, most most people have a morgue of some kind. So the 15-hour mark typically goes away because it's they're in cooling. So the 24-hour is kind of in everybody that's involved with tissue that hour mark is always there like your time your clock is running so you're doing a lot of things under pressure and under a lot of time sensitivity as far as when does this have to happen and how quickly it has to happen so let's move so now you've, you've gotten the referral and you screen and the person is does have the opportunity to to say the lives of others who tissue donation and you're giving that family the opportunity and they say yes what takes place next so once they say yes the authorization parts Pretty simple. Then we do a DRE, which is like a questionnaire of medical history, social history, all those pieces. Once all that is completed and deemed there's nothing high risk associated with that, then it will go to a tissue processor that they, it's called screening. So everything that we have learned via medical history, DRE, all that goes to the tissue processor. They review and say, yes, we would like this or no, we would not. So it's a second layer of information that you're having to screen once you yep. talk to the and family. And that part we don't, nothing we're going to provide is really going to sway that information, sway that decision. That is the tissue processor's role in this equation is to say, yes, we would like this tissue or no, we would not. Um, if we have a yes, depending on where the donor is, a lot, like 98% of our donors happen at our donor care center. We have three ORs here. They all happen here for the most part. Nationally, it can go. We sell the ability to recover at a coroner's office. We try to keep everything as sterile as possible. That's why we do prefer our facility or a hospital OR because the sterility of those facilities are top notch and we can control the environment. Um, time constraints do play a role. Like We have to go to the donor. Uh, certain corners may not want to release, so it's another piece of it. Like, I will we'll allow you to recover these tissues, but I'm not going to let you have this have the decedent at your facility. When that happens, we have to send, send our recovery team there to go recover the tissues. So here's the logistical piece. Um, if they're local, not local, anywhere in the state, we can transport them here if time allots. Um, if not, we will have to go to them. A routine, like what we prefer, donor will come to us. We then dispatch our recovery team. Everybody is pretty much based in the New Orleans region. We have a couple folks like in further south, but they're all within two hours of our facility. They get a dispatch saying like, hey, we have a case coming. This is what time this donor is going to be here. They all know within two hours they need to be at our facility to be ready to recover. Um, at that point, there's a whole lot of balls rolling because then we have to know, is this donor going to be an eye donor? Is this donor going to be a research donor? And is this donor going to be a tissue donor? 
all three of those have three different recovery teams that all have to be coordinated and logistically kind of planned on who was going first, who's going second, who's going third. So the timing does get pretty pretty demanding as far as like when do we need them and how do we get them here. Well, Joe, listen, I know that there's so much more that we can go into and that we will uh, on the next episode. I would really like to go into the gifts that families are able to donate to the lives of others. So thank you for being here today and I look forward to our next episode. Absolutely. And thank you for listening and being someone that cares about organ and tissue donation. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Connected by Life on your favorite podcast app. And remember, you're a light worker. Keep shining. This is a production of LOPA. The content in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional medical advice. To read our full disclaimer, please visit our website. The Connected by Life podcast is hosted by myself, Sean Paul Harrison. Our executive producer is Kirsten Heinz. Our production assistant is Chandra Williams. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. 